You're listening to. Hey guys, welcome back to First of All, a real unfiltered conversation on career, family, relationships, and all things modern culture. I'm your host, Minji Chang, and thanks so much for tuning in for this week's episode. I hope you're doing well, and if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, you're enjoying the sweater weather, maybe parka weather, where you are getting ready for the holidays and living your best life. This week's featured topic is a doozy, and I am excited to have Edward Hong as my guest. He is an actor. He's from, well, you'll hear where he's from. He's from all over, Um, but he's a good friend of mine. We met through acting school at Beverly Hills Playhouse several years ago, and we've become really good friends, and Eddie is honestly one of the most passionate and uh, open people that I've ever met, and we have definitely helped each other a lot both as professional actors and artists and as human beings. And so I've been meaning to have him on this podcast for quite a while, and we just made it happen finally. I'm really excited to have him here. And as you probably know by now, if you clicked on this, you know that our featured topic is through the dark times. And so because of that, I wanted to include a bit of a disclaimer in the intro that we are going to talk about darker themes. We're going to talk about heavy issues that uh, Eddie's gone through a lot. I've gone through a lot, which you've gotten to know through this podcast, but um, just want to put that out there. If you are in a place where hearing about this disclaimer actually doesn't sit well with you or makes you feel some type of way, I want to leave space right now to say you can bookmark this episode and come back to it when you're in a better place. Honestly, um, don't force yourself or, you know, what's the word? like self-sabotage or just do anything that can kind of further that darkness. That's not the goal of this. But if you are intrigued to hear about someone else's story, that is why Eddie and I open up and why I had him as a guest um, to be able to, to go there and then figure out how we all can find ways to get out of it. Because that is our goal, that um, both of us care deeply about anybody listening to this. If you're a human being, we care about you. We want you to get through that hard time. Um, And hopefully this episode, to everybody who listens to this, is constructive and healing and uh, puts you in a place of hope rather than despair. So yeah, that's my disclaimer. That's my, those are my intentions for this episode. And honestly, every freaking episode of this podcast, I want this to be a place of connection, of safety, and for you to feel like you got something good and can go forth and prosper. That is my goal. So, um, yeah, if you ever want to message me, thank you to everyone who's been sending me DMs or emails. I'm so grateful to know that the other episodes have been touching hearts and helping friends. And uh, it's just, I'm truly honored. You can DM me at first of all pod uh, on Instagram, or you can email me first of all pod at gmail.com and hit me up if you want merch, all that stuff. Like, let me know. I'm here for you, is what I'm saying. But without further ado, here is my episode Through the Dark Times with Edward Hong. Be well and enjoy. I'm tired of it Boy, you played yourself with your nonsense. I, I don't know what you're saying. Let me sit my water. Let's talk about things. <laughs> 
how are you doing in, in, in the acting world? You're auditioning. You're like super busy. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. Uh, by the way, are we live? We are. We're totally, <laughs> we're totally live. live. I'm just getting a natural intro. Okay. Just <laughs> How's the acting world going? It's going well. Um, you know, uh, this is, I'm at a point where all the things I've always wanted to do are all the barrels are firing. There's the voiceover realm. There's the theater realm. There's the TV film realm. And, you know, commercial moment everything's all going at once um so you know you're at a point in i'm at a point in my career where i'm not so much focused on the results of it but just having fun good because it's so easy to kind of get bitter and very depressed and very angry about (laughs) that your career is going nowhere and then you look on your social media and be like that stupid mofo booked a series (laughs) regular and he sucks sucks no yes. talent. Yes. Talent. Yeah. I mean, great way to enjoy. I, I'm i so happy to hear it. First of all, I want to say I'm really happy to hear that it's all systems go for you. I said in the intro earlier that, you know, I introduced you as my acting friend from BHP, from Beverly Hills Playhouse. But you are like one of the first people that I really in a creative world in L.A. got to know and like work with. You're my first scene partner at BHP in LA. So you're like, you're a very significant person in my life. And I know that's why I see, I feel like I have had an, uh, like a front row view of your work ethic, the way that you strategize. So it's not even like the craft, it's everything else, which I'm very big on. Like I've said it ad nauseum on this podcast, you know, it's not just about talent. Talent only goes so far. It's about everything else and the attitude and, you know, administration. Basically, the tenets of our acting school. Oh, yes. Um, are you still at BHP? Yes, I'm still at BHP. And by next April, I would have been there for 10 years. Oh, my dear Lord. It is a long time. Oh, my dear Lord. I haven't been there in a minute, but I want to give a shout out and so much love to BHP because I still, I love, I will always love that school. Sidebar, if you're interested in acting class, holler at me or Eddie. <laughs> we can tell you. Um, I remember you and I talked on Facebook, right? Before I even met you, like before I even came yes. to L.A., we were like Facebook chatting. Yeah, because I knew, yeah, it was just you were involved with collaboration mm-hmm. back then. You were in San Francisco and you were involved with the BHP of San Francisco. Yeah. And so when you were making, you know, you were making a move down here, I was like, oh, it's only logical. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that's how we first got acquainted through social media. I want to scroll back and find that first conversation. Conversation, be like, how did we say hi? Yeah, Google back to your Facebook or- Messenger. Just yeah. Like, yeah, origin story. I think that was like 2000. I moved here 14, so it had to have been over five years ago. I want to look at it right Maybe now. Maybe six. You're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna do a little trip down memory okay, lane. So Minji. While look. Eddie searches for that, I just want to say, like, what we've learned in the acting process, because obviously not everyone listening to this podcast is an actor or an aspiring creative. Though I hope that we can continue to plant seeds that everyone is a creative and that I hope that you utilize that creative part of your soul. I give up because it's there's too many conversations. Oh, there's too many conversations. We talk too much. Scrolling, scrolling. It's very difficult. Yeah, which is why I brought Eddie. I was like, we need to record one of these. Um, But back to what I was saying. Not everyone is a creative person. I hope that everyone taps into that part. But I I feel like there's so much about you as a person and your journey – Um, that I feel is super relatable, super universal, even though it's under this uh, specific, what do you call it, industry lens of acting, which I think people are always, like, I don't know, I was always, I'm biased, I was always fascinated by that journey. But it's such a unique, vulnerable, (laughs) relentless, soul-crushing journey. Yes. 
Um, and through the years, you and I have gotten to talk about so many different things that apply to not only the, the industry and the profession of being an artist, but like just being a human because we have to bring all that to the work. Yes. Right. So, I mean... I think a great place to start, if you could give the synopsis of, like, you've told me about all the different places you lived. Can you recap that for the first okay. of all listeners? Because uh, getting context of Edward It's Hall. hilarious, too, when people ask, where are you from? Where, you know, where did you born? Blah, blah, blah. And my girlfriend always rolls her eyes because I always have to do, like, a summarized cap version of it. And even then, it's it goes a little too long. So let's do it for here. Let's Here we go. <laughs> All right. So I was born in Yolo, California. Yes, Yolo is a real place in the Northern California area. So was I. Oh, my. Yeah, we got to talk about that. That's that a shocker. Uh, after that, then I moved to Binghamton, New York, was there for a few years, and then moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan for elementary and middle school then moved to seoul south korea went to an international high school called seoul foreign school i was there for high school then randomly went to williamsburg virginia for college of william and mary and then came to los angeles as of this point almost 10 years ago quite a journey honestly sidebar your journey is just like kenji's well kenji like whenever people like say where are you from that's why he always asks people where are you from because like he's like i bet you i've lived there or near there same thing he has like a whole thing would you japan and washington so he's a tck we call those third culture kids where they keep bouncing around different places and different countries we call them tck's he is so that Mm -hmm. so you guys can chat about that it feels very familiar um also shout out to your girlfriend josephine i love her um so you've been to all these different places i feel like we could spend hours on end about each location what was kind of the, I mean, one of the themes, right? One of the things you and I have talked about is being, yeah, like a country hopper. Mm-hmm. But it's not even country. It's cultures, right? Yes. You're, you're You're jumping from freaking California to New York to Michigan to Korea to yeah. Virginia yeah. to back to, I mean, then to L.A., which is, of course, in and of itself, its own, like, special crazy universe. Um, how's it gone for you? <laughs> I mean, you know... In my life, especially when I was in my teenage years and in my middle school years as well, it and we'll we'll obviously get more into it. it was a I call it definitely as a lot of I guess East Asian men can also describe attest to like the very angry years, you know, especially with being an Asian American and not knowing quite what your place is, and then your surrounding community, especially if you're like the only Asian person telling you this is who you are, they'll make all these assumptions, they'll throw all these racial slurs at you, and either you conform to it and believe in it, or you get very angry about it and lash out at it, which is exactly what I did, especially my youth. Now it's like, you know, you know, you, you enter into your thirties and you still care, but it's just, you just get tired. And so, you know, you just don't give a crap anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's where I would say I'm at where I still care about the things that happen or I still care when, you know, terrible shit happens or it's being done to me or people I know or to communities. But it's just like, Especially in this current political climate, it just, there's so much happening constantly Mm -hmm. that it is not possible to get so angry about every single situation. Mm. You will easily burn yourself out. And I have reached that point multiple times throughout my 20s. And at this point, when now I'm in my 30s, I'm like, I just can't, it's not possible. I just can't do it. Right. 
I mean, the emotional exhaustion. This was, that was something that I actually discussed on this podcast, I think, in like when I first started it, which was over two years ago. And I'm like, it's only gotten worse. It's really interesting to kind of have a time capsule. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, that's what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And I, and a lot of what you're saying really definitely hits home with me. There's been a lot of discussions, um, just to choose one of the things that you're talking about, about being like the angry Asian, but specifically angry Asian man. Shout out to Phil you. But um, being, I mean, there, there's a very big distinction, I feel like, you know, in terms of people of color, all the experiences are very unique and varied. There's kind of a shared plight of being othered. Mm-hmm. But the way that people are othered is definitely unique when you get into the subcategories. Yes. I have taken, you know, full ownership and observation of the fact that as an Asian American female, I feel like my experience though I can go on and I have about being fetishized or feeling unsafe or being all these different things. It is a different experience than say like my brothers or like my boyfriends, ex-boyfriends and um, friends and just like my colleagues, you know, there's a different experience. And I, I would, between you and me, it's like, we know this well, but I'm curious to like hear where you're at now, now that we're in this complete state of exhaustion can kind of speak about it in a different way. Because mm-hmm. I don't want to wear you out emotionally. I, oh, you're, no, you're, no, you're, no, no. you're a creative vessel. Like, you need to preserve that. But, you know, now that we can kind of unpack it a little bit in a calmer fashion, mm-hmm. I may get really angry on this podcast again. But I feel like it's worth doing. Yeah. Right? Some of it, I'm between you and me, does it feel like I get sick of the conversation? Like, totally honest. To me, in my circle, in my universe, we talk about it so much that I'm like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Oh, no, I, I'm at that point, especially where we are in the specific industry where we are about being an Asian American creative, being an Asian American actor in this industry in Hollywood. Yeah. And at this point, I remember in my 20s that I used to be so passionate and interested in going to all these diversity panels and Asian American panels and, you know, fighting against oppression and stereotypes. And now I'm at a point where I just don't care anymore because I can easily predict every panel. I know what they're going to talk about. It's about, you got to just make your work, man. You just, you just got to create more, man. You just got to keep doing it, man. And I'm just like, all right, man, I don't, I don't need to go, go to another, you know, panel about diversity. I rather see my true like vision is that like, there's a show and it just happens to have lots of people of color in major parts. And they're not talking about the struggle. They're talking about the story. They're talking about, oh, we got this cool, crazy sci-fi thing going on. Right. Or oh, we're gonna we're fighting dragons and all this stuff. And maybe we'll talk about the issues of race and that. But it's like when you're in the environment of like these other people that surround your cast. Like one show I can think of specifically is a sci-fi show called The Expanse. It's now on Amazon Prime. They're gonna have a new season next month. And that show is significant because majority of the cast are people of color. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some people in these panels, they will ask the actors, like, you know, what does it feel like? And they don't really think of it because it's just that like, there's so many of us. Mm-hmm. And so, it, it, you know, but we do look at each other like, look at us. Kind of like, I, mean, I always think of the, it's like that whole thing that's become a meme that Paul Rudd and his Hot Ones uh, interview where he's just eating the hot stuff and he's like, look at us. That's how I feel. I'm like, I want to oh, be, Rudd. I want to be in that position where we're, we're rubbing elbows with each other. Look at us. Yeah. We, we made it. Yeah. And so 
I want more of that. I think it is starting to happen. I think yeah. uh, there's been a lot more, especially in the TV realm, the streaming realm, where we see more news of people of color taking the leads and creating content, like you said earlier, that it's possible we can make these contents and there's a market out there for it. Right. And so I, you know, the less we see more of those like, woe is me, everything sucks, the white man is terrible, kind of is, I'm kidding, Um, that... <laughs> That you can move on from that and just proceed into just being creative and just not having stories that's about oppression. Like, I would love to see, like, an LGBT story that's not about, like, oh, you know, like, it, it, it's terrible to be gay. It's like, I just want to see a story about, you know, two not always white people because apparently gay people only exist in the white world. It, ex- it exists everywhere else mm-hmm. that you just see, I don't know, a black guy and an Asian guy. They just happen to fall in love. It's a cutesy romance, and there's nothing about it is so terrible to be gay. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the struggles of being an LGBT is similar to the struggles of being a minority. We think that, you know, the only stories we can tell are that of oppression. And that is not true, but it feels, you know, it feels like there is pressure because the only thing that white people want to see is stories of oppression. Mm-hmm. And I don't care about that. I don't care about oppression stories. I care stories about fun. And it doesn't mean I want to neglect the bad things. Of course, bad things are happening. But I think there needs to be more diversity of storytelling where we can focus on the good things like, you know, living, enjoying life. And it just happens to be that it is a person of color or that they happen to be gay or that they're trans or that they're disabled and just tell the freaking story and just be happy with that. That's the ideal position I want to see us in mm-hmm. in the years to come. And I can see it happening. It's it's nice to see it. Like the, it's blossoming. It's like a little seeds are growing. And I'm like, and, I just, and I'm just like, grow faster. Damn it, just grow faster. <laughs> So that's well, we're definitely yeah. well. There's tons of uh, fertilizer and uh, what, like, lots of things happening to prosper that that idea and nurture that plant into into growing and fruition. So I got you, Eddie. You know I got you. <laughs> yeah. um, this is why Eddie and I bond because we understand the struggle. But I get what you're saying, and and. I just want to take a second to acknowledge, like, I'm, we're just keeping it 100% real because that's the world that Eddie and I live in. But, like, what I've learned through collaboration and being in all these other kinds of rooms is that it's kind of a it, – oddly, the exhaustion or, like, the annoyance that can be felt of, like, oh, my God, are we still talking about yes. this? The, the reality is in a lot of rooms and a lot of audiences and a lot of circles, that that conversation is still very, very new. Yes. If – yeah, not they just don't exist. It's just basically so, geared towards white people. Like even like uh, being involved in the theater world, there's been a lot more Asian American plays exploding into the national, uh, you know, the sense, and that's great. But the majority of these plays that are getting, you know, to be honest, white people's attentions and the money and all their funding are the ones that deal with oppression. The ones that deal with like, oh man, it's it's so tough to be Asian. And the thing is, like, these stories have been around for decades. It's just only now that, like, white people are like, oh, wow, this is fascinating. Like, you it know, is really coupled with it. the white guilt. It I is white know. guilt. Yeah. White guilt sells so well. So if you're a writer and, you know, you want to you want to make a sell a script, make it about oppression, baby. I've yet to see a movie about the Chinese transcontinental railroads that are being blown up. You probably want an Oscar. Make a film about that. And 
I think you'll probably sell it, which sounds terrible. And then Eddie and I will help true. cast all the all the great Chinese American yeah. actors who can who can play your roles. <laughs> but there's a lot of strategy, and that's what I think. There's again, like my my kind of approach to a lot of things is like peeling back the layers. Nothing yeah. is ever as simple as as it may seem, right? And even a topic as layered, inherently layered as racism, yeah, or oppression. It's going to have layers to it. There's no one way to go about it that's going to be right or wrong or it's going to solve racism. Right. It's going to solve. This is an ongoing process, which is why it just feels sometimes intolerable. It yes. feels just like it's never ending because it is never ending. That's and maybe correct. that's something that we just accept. And and I, I want to credit you, Eddie, because I think it does take a, a lot of deter- like passion, conviction, just persistence and determination to sustain giving a crap for that long. Right. And I know full, full well, like how exhausting, like that is the the most (laughs) soft word I can use. It's exhausting to, to care. And some people might look at this issue and just be like, my dear God, you're just so angry and you're so hostile about everything. But what I care about is why are we so why? Because I care about the why. There's a reason. I didn't just roll out of bed and decide, I'm going to be antagonistic today. I'm just going to let everything bother yeah. me. I, like anybody else, would love to just exist in a world and yeah. have pleasant things happen. And I have had conversations about anger and, like, anxiety and all these these things that can be genetically passed on and inherited. We have, you and I are Korean American, we've inherited a lot of trauma. But also there are real things that we deal with in conversations, in a day-to-day interaction that accumulate over time. They like embed themselves into our souls and like, you know, can can become resentment and they can become anger. Yeah. Um, and you're talking about this now we're going to like switch gears a little bit, but to like Again, roll back to where that's rooted in you. I get where you're wanting to. I love that you just set out this like whole (laughs) vision of the future, which I agree with you. I think we're definitely walking that path right now. It's clunky and it's weird and it's uncomfortable, but we're doing it. And that's great. Mm -hmm. I want to say that's freaking great. Um, And we're contributing to it, which is great. But to go back to like what you're saying about jumping cultures and and where do you feel like, I mean, there's hormones there's honestly just puberty, like being a child, you get into that angry phase mm-hmm. kind of normally, whatever yeah. race you are. But as like a kid that was jumping around from place to place, figuring out, I mean, just being a kid that has to move around, period, you have to adapt and mm-hmm. you have to like be super uncomfortable. You have to be the odd one out and figure out who you are in the social hierarchy. You have to figure out how to make friends. Where do you feel like it got really bad? I'm curious, like... Because we're talking about getting through difficult things, right? This mm-hmm. is kind of like the place that we're at as society. Do you remember? Yes. Um, middle school, without a doubt. Uh, while I have good memories of middle school, I think for a lot of people, regardless of whatever ethnicity and sexual orientation you are, middle school can universally be accepted as pretty rough times. Yeah. But for my particular case... Um, at that time, being in Ann Arbor, Michigan, there were, you know, Asian Americans around, but there weren't that many. And so, you know, like 
any typical Asian American kid growing up in an American setting where you're kind of like you're definitely the minority and there's less of you, you easily can become a target. So uh, in terms of getting a racial slurs, like one of the most popular ones I got, I remember was being called like gook breath or fish breath or chinky eyes or, you know, just a whole gamut of like the stereotypical slurs people throw at you regardless of whatever Asian you are. Doesn't matter. They'll just call that to you. And I remember not taking that well. And this is also, I got to add on that it wasn't just being taunted by these kids, that, but also I think it definitely is fueled by my home upbringing as well. My mom was and to this day is an amazing person. Mm-hmm. My dad, however, is a different story. That is a story based in trauma and a lot of hurt and a lot of anger and a lot of rage and so when you have someone like that in your life it can translate rather terribly into everything else and so being in middle school i did not deal with confrontation well i lashed out constantly and the worst case was this happened um when I was seventh grade, uh, I had these I had these two bullies who were constantly pick on me. It was almost like a daily routine, and I think I just completely lost it. And so how I lost it was that I just yelled out into the hall right in front of them because they were cornering me into this area, and I just yelled out. Class was just letting out. Everyone was going home, and I just yelled out, I'm going to come to school next day. I'm going to shoot you both in the head. I just yelled that out. And you can just only imagine the sheer, like, what the hell? Like, everyone just froze. And the teacher's like, oh, my God. And so, uh, mind you, at this point right now, this wasn't too long after the Columbine shooting. That was the timeline of this. And so... This was in Michigan? This was in Michigan. This was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So, when that happened, uh, I was immediately brought to... You know, the same day, the principal's office, they had to drag my mom because she was studying. Uh, she was studying at the U of M. And at this point right now, it was just me and my mom at this particular moment. My dad already moved to Korea, so it was just her and me, and she was trying to take care of me. And so she was brought to the principal's office, and then they had a discussion. They're like, okay, I think we need to suspend your son because he is a danger. And the fact that he just said that. And so my mom was like, oh, my oh my God, I didn't know. I had no idea. And she, she didn't because she was so busy with studies, and it was hard to raise a son by herself. And so... Uh, she definitely pleaded the case, like, please don't suspend my son. Are there any alternatives? And they said, okay, well, he needs to take anger management therapy and we need to watch over him, blah, blah, blah. So they reached a compromise and I had anger management. And so it was just like every single day, uh, during after class, I would go to a psychologist and just talk about these issues, which, you know, that was my first time dealing in the sense of therapy, which, you know, was extremely beneficial in terms of like any issues I had and just lashing it out. And then just like meeting other kids who also had their own issues. Like I remember this one kid who had a supremely abusive uh, family household and he would always want to beat up every single guy he would ever meet. And so he definitely had anger at management issues from, and then, and I remember this Latino kid. And so we would just bond over just like, we just want to beat up everyone. Just like they all suck. And so we definitely bonded over that. But, um, but then like, that was middle school. And then, like, after seventh grade, eighth grade, like, I think I mellowed out a bit. And I was like, okay, I think I'm okay. You know, and 
I thought that was the end of that. I think now things are going to get better. And then my mom got her PhD. It was like, hey, we're going to move to Korea. I'm like, what? Why? And so we moved to Korea to join my dad, which was something I dreaded for several reasons. One, I didn't want to be in Korea because even though I am Korean, I don't speak the language that well. And I still don't kind of speak the language that well. And to be in an environment where I'm just going to be surrounded by all these faces who look just like me. And the worst part, being back with my dad. And so when I was in high school, it was... It was just this weird feeling that I think a lot of Asian Americans can attest to that when you have to go back to your mother country and you don't identify anything that's going on there, the culture, the people, the mannerisms, anything, it's all foreign to you. But everyone expects that you are like that. So Mm -hmm. when you don't conform to that, you are like literally as the, the famous Asian saying that you're the nail sticking out of the plank. Like, and so they want to hammer you down. And for me, I lashed out so bad in the sense of like, there would, there would be older Korean people, Korean men, especially in, in my high school, they'll be like, Oh, you know, you don't have any manners. You're not saying this. And so one time, you know, I guess I got away of not being beaten up because they all surrounded me like, Oh, we need to teach you a lesson. You know, you're so disrespectful to your elders. And I'm in thinking in my head, dude, you're like one of you guys. You're literally like a year older than me. You are literally like a few months older than me. What the hell is going on? This is where I started learning the whole like the whole Confucius respect system that while oh, I agree while I agree to it to some extent, I think it's ridiculous when someone's just a year older than you. That's where I'm like, Oh, this will go deep in like people like, oh you're like like a week older. Yeah. That I mean it's the ridiculous. joke is be like, call me on your new yeah. these are like uh respectful names that you call to your elders. And like, I agree if it's like, if you're like 15 years old, I'm like, yeah, I'll call you that. But even then I still have issues. Cause I just don't just call you by your first name. Um, oh, they make you bow to them yeah. and stuff. I mean, and so thing. I didn't do any of that. And so they try <laughs> to beat me up and they started me in like, you know, we were, I was out on Shincho, which is like a popular like district for, you know, to people to hang out after, you know, during the, the weekend hours. And so, uh, they cornered me and there were like six of these guys. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to, I'm totally going to get beat up. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh God. And then I was thinking, I'm going to be so brave. I'll be like, yeah, we're going to have a fight. It'll be like those Korean gangster movies where it's like, yeah, we're going to have a fight and I'll be bloody and I'll be strong. And then that, none of that happened. I just broke and I just cried and they didn't know what to do with that. And so one of them just sat me down and was like, you know, I think, I guess you're a good guy. We didn't expect that you would cry all of a sudden. We were expecting that you would have a fight because you seem so tough. You seem so like, oh, yeah, you're such a big guy now. And then you're like, oh, okay. I right. could, you could come off feel like you're just a giant middle finger to all of these, like, hongims. Like, they, and they don't, they're just like, who is this kid? Yeah. And so they were like, all right, whatever. And so that passed. But the thing was, like, high school itself was fine. You know, like, you know, it was a very bizarre environment being in an international private Christian school it's a whole that's a whole story right there oh my Lord. but my issues growing up wasn't so much with the school at that point it was with my dad because now that i was living with him i was dealing with a man who like not all uh east asian men in that generation but like a good number of them who did not know how to deal with emotions how to deal with anger how to deal with like you know healthily you know expressing it so that when you are pissed off about something you know how to express it that is like constructive and he didn't know how to do that he could only express it through beating me up that was what he did and so i you know i would tell oh as the years went by i would make jokes to other east asian men even like 
non-Asian people who have experienced similar households, like especially the Latino households, where they're like, oh yeah, we we experience like getting beat up by our parents with certain objects. And I said, like, oh yeah, I've been beat up by a chair. I've been beat up with a golf club. I think at one point my dad almost tried to kill me because he said I, he raised a monster. And so this was the kind of father I had. And you can only imagine the anger issues that like I thought was resolved by middle school just came back up again. It was just... It just came back up. It was kind of like almost like an alcoholic where all the demons you kind of thought you were like, you know what? I made peace with you. Now they're like, hello, uh, we're back out to play now. And back so, with a vengeance. So that was high school. And so yeah. when senior year came and then I was able to graduate, I wanted to go to the most opposite place of Seoul where, you know, there's like at that point, it was like 20 million people crammed into one tiny city. And so I wanted to go a place that was different from that. So the reason why I chose Williamsburg, Virginia College of William Mary, which is where I went to college, was because my friend recommended it to me and to say, hey, there's a lot of nice trees and squirrels and it's very peaceful. And I'm like, you know what? That sounds great. I didn't care what programs they had. I just was like, great. Went apply there. And I, that was one of the colleges I got accepted to. And I was like, you know what? I'm going there. And so, so then... Being in Williamsburg, Virginia was fine too. And then like, you know, where the demons kind of like, you know, all right, let's, we're at, we're at bay. We're calm now. And then we go to 2007. Uh, that was at that point, the, my sophomore year of college. And that was when the Virginia Tech shooting happened. And so that definitely brought something out of me in the sense of like, in, once the identity of the shooter was revealed, Cho Sang Hui, and then what came from that was just like, of course, the media's obsession of like, holy shit, like it's an Asian shooter, it's a Korean shooter. And of course, what it didn't help that the the Korean government apologized on behalf of Chosung. We're like, we're so sorry that this happened. And I'm like, oh my god, it's just one dude who did it. But from that, other things started coming out. Um, his plays that he wrote during his playwriting class got leaked online, and so. At that point, I kind of got obsessed with Cho Sang Hui because I was like, dude, you know, where I was in freshman year and beginning of uh, sophomore year, I was pursuing an English degree. So was Cho Sang Hui. He was also pursuing an English degree. And I'm just like, what's happening? And so then I, the plays were leaked. And I read it. And all of the plays dealt with, at the end, the main character killing his father figure. And I'm like, I know this feeling all too well. Mm. And so I was so, 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 so fortunate that I had an Asian-American professor uh, named Francis Tangelo Aguas who oversaw all of that. He also had his own traumas, you know, being a kid in the Philippines, especially during the Ferdinand Marcos regime. Like, that's a whole, like, fucked up region right there And so, at that time. And so he understood it, and he was like, he had no judgments and he was like, I want you to express this. And I'm like, are you serious? This is going to be terrible. It's going to be dark. It's going to be really messed up. And people are going to think I'm a psycho. And he's like, don't worry about it. And so uh, this this class they were in, it was like, you know, it was, it was like ex- identity expression through the minority landscape, through Asian American eyes. And that was the class. That's what wow. he had. He was, Whoa. he comes from the UCLA background. He was super Cali. So to Williamsburg, Virginia, white people, he was considered crazy because he was so Cali. He was so out there. It's progressive and, and, yeah, exactly. and left. But 
because of him made made it possible for me to express and that was how I expressed it. and that was how like spoken poetry first came into my life because then he introduced me to these like dude look at all these artists they all got rage they all got issues they're all expressing and I was like oh my god people do that people can express that and people actually go yeah I get it and so I created a poem about like how I actually, in a really fucked up way, identified and related to Cho Sang Hui because I knew where he was coming from. I don't condone what he did, of course, but I can understand the, the steps it took to get to that point. And there has been other students in the Virginia Tech area who have also said, dude, like it's so fall easy to fall into the cracks. And if you were treated the way Cho Sang Hui was done in a short amount of time, it is, it is very plausible how someone can just go, you know what? I don't care anymore. I'm just going to shoot people. Once again, not condoning that that yeah. is acceptable, but it is always important to see how does one person get to that point? Because it didn't just happen randomly. It just, there was a progression where at some point, Cho Sang Hui, when I learned his background, he got profiled by the police because this girl got scared that she he was stalking her. And all he did was just write a note, and a poem about like, you know, being invisible and wanting to be seen. She didn't take it too well. She was a daughter of the local police chief that was in the area. And so he got involved and then they they got him analyzed and he was considered like unfit, unwell. So you can only imagine that like, you know, what it does to a person of that degree. And so... I just follow all of that and just identifying, especially the whole father part. And so this poem was just me just literally vomiting out this hatred, of all the things I wanted to say to my dad. I'm like, how much I hate you, how much you have, you know, you have fucked me up so much. And so I said it in front of a space, you know, of all these classmates. And then there was like one random classmate who was a guest who thought he was going to have a good time because they're like oh yeah we're going to share our project it's going to be fun it's going to be funny and i'm like oh my god this is going to be the worst and friends like it's okay you can just do it and so i did it and it just became the first clear evidence of like how an artist can change the world in a sense that i finished a piece kind of i kind of i just pretty much broke down by the end and i look up after i'm just like completely sobbing my eyes out i look up and every single person in the class is just crying just like absolute in tears and it was like this huge hugging bonding session and it felt like just like all their you know their their love and things even people who didn't even know me that well just like came into me and i was like wow like i can see why the there's the value of art is like the true meaning of being an artist not just like for money and for fame but to actually make us tell a story that can change people's lives. Because after that happened, other students in that class started telling me about their traumatic experience with their parents, with being, you know, with being gay or with being the other. And I was like, we are all in this together. And so that feeling of connection, exactly like connecting with somebody else outside of yourself. Yes. Like that they get you. Yeah. And so not too long after that, I got involved with the Muslim student association because they heard about this piece because the people in the class, they told about it. And then they're like, dude, can you present that piece? And I was kind of confused. I was like, I'm, I, I'm not Muslim. I have, I, it's not about that. He's like, but we understand it because it's about, you want to, you want to lash out, you want to rage. And, and that's when I started learning about Islam and all about this and all the misconceptions and all the stereotypes people have about Muslim. They're like, and I'm like, oh my God, it, in a way it's similar. The world perceives Muslims as violent animals. And so, you know, you either have the choice to rise above it and be like, you know what? I'm not that. Or just as just understandably 
get so angry about it and just lash out. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, I, I get it. And now I understand why they invited me to. And so it is from that and my college experience, even though the city itself was not that diverse, the college was thriving of diversity of all these groups and all these organizations. And college became the definitive benchmark in terms of like why I wanted to be an actor and actually do this thing in LA was to realize that there was a space for us. And that's how in during that time frame with that same professor, Fat Francis, that we started a performing arts organization called IPEX, which is basically telling stories about diversity, about minorities that in our theater community, in, in that realm, they weren't telling that because it was like, you know, the theater department was only interested in telling about, you know, sentimental Oscar Wilde shows or like, you know, oh, 19, oh, Jane Eyre, whatever. And Another so... production of Oklahoma. Exactly. And so we told stories that dealt with diversity. And so because of that, it was an affirmation that we could move, we could tell stories, and people would be moved by that. Mm-hmm. And that... All of that encapsulates like the rage and all of that, the anger, the sadness, but then knowing that your demons, all the crap you got going on, there will there are people who will understand you and share that now I was so privileged and lucky to have a professor who didn't judge me because when I moved to Los Angeles and I was still kind of looking into the Sung Hui Cho thing and like you know, what can I do with this? I Boldly, I brazenly contacted the playwrights professor who taught Cho Sang Hui at that time, and I and he and he was so confused, like why I would contact. He's like, "Dude, I don't want to talk to you, but you know your email. It does seem genuine uh, because you want to know about this guy." And all I can tell you is that I pretty much dismissed him. I didn't think his writing was that good, but I didn't really think beyond it. I didn't think of the anger. I just kind of just. Like, you know, I had so many students and, you know, and he's like, that's not an excuse, though. It's like, uh, but I was so busy that I just just like, it's not a good play, which he was right. The plays weren't good. It was not a good play. But, you know, what Francis did that this professor in Virginia Tech didn't do was that he was like, it's not about the quality. It's about like what's going on with the person. Mm -hmm. And Francis was instrumental and not just like, you know, looking at just the quality or like the aesthetics of it. It's just like, who is the human being underneath it? Mm -hmm. And so... Though this Virginia Tech professor, you know, say, I do regret it that I wish I could have been more attentive and it's on me and all that. But at the same time, like, you know, you know, I blame myself every single day because as I wish I could have talked to him, I wish I could have been like, not so like, here, you got a D, you got to do this again. And instead of like, like, so what's going on here? Like, tell me about this. What is this about this father figure? Like, (sighs) he didn't do any of that. And it's like, you can't blame him for that. It's like, Virginia Tech is a huge school. Yeah. And how many students did he yeah, have? He had a ton of students. Like, well, with Francis, the class size was like 15. It yeah. was so much smaller. And so when he did that, when after that, that's when I just stopped doing the whole Cho Sang Hui, like, the search thing. Because I was like, you know what? I think I can acknowledge I was very lucky to have someone like that. I was very lucky to have friends who understood it and, like, could express it with me and i understand that not everyone has that Mm -hmm. not everyone is lucky to have people who are willing to look at you and not judge you and that's the hardest thing about you know being you know i guess being a minority is that you don't know that if your story is going to be received well right and so that's where i am i'm gonna lay down 
<laughs> I love you, Eddie. I just want to say that. I love you. I There's a lot that, uh, I mean, I'll never experience and I won't ever know fully. Um, I've seen a lot of versions of that pain. I've watched it growing up. I've, like, experienced it myself in my own versions. And it really, like, definitely fuels the art that I want to make. And I, too, like, thank the Lord that I have this means to do that. And I think it's—I it's, it's um, I love that you touch upon kind of, like, the privilege aspect of it. Because sometimes people can overly simplify things and be like, well, why don't you just— yeah. What if they don't just have the funds, the support? Like, how do you just? It's like you can't just tell a person, oh, just do, just pull your bootstraps up and be like, yeah, yeah just get therapy, just, just paint something and be. But it's not that, <laughs> it's not that simple. right? And so this is why I, I mean, there's no simple answer to this. There's no like, who knows what any answer is. It's just it's the kind of the uh, larger, the larger challenge. And beauty, if you want to look at it that way, of being a person. We will never know what's fully going on in a person's life to like, you know, they can come off the presentation of them on social media, in school, in a school setting, in a church setting, in whatever, can be X. And mm-hmm. internally, Y, Z, like exclamation point, like all sorts of other things going on inside. And that's mm-hmm. the that's the tough part. And I think one of the the beautiful things that I think, you know, as much as I have raged against my own culture and had issues with being Korean American and still in the process of learning the duality of these identities, um, the thing that I, I, I choose and that I do celebrate about, uh, one element of it, again, in Korea can be really extreme, is that, uh, is that collective feeling that there they <laughs> there are no individuals they are just one people mm-hmm. and like in one way it's so problematic i mean like come on people have the right to be a, a human being they're unique they have their own sexual preferences they have their own like if you don't like the color that everyone else likes god forbid like you're you're fine you shouldn't be ostracized for that there's there's that downside to that but on the good side of that there's definitely kind of this community feeling this communal feeling of one is we are one and the same and therefore again depends on which way you look at it it can be really beautiful and and i feel like that relatability that feeling of like having connection to another person can be very healing it can be any one thing to any extreme can be really damaging but we can also choose to find like different perspectives mm-hmm. when you're what i've noticed about me what i'll say you know i've shared a lot of different stories about abuse or trauma but what i have learned as an adult, thankfully, by getting through really dark times, is the power of my choice. Because you can so easily get lost in that darkness, mm-hmm. in that anger. Yes. And it can be totally reasonable. And if you, again, peel back the layers, you look at it and you're like, well, damn, that makes sense. You know, it makes sense. But I also think that that is what I will ultimately land on is the beauty and the strength of the human spirit to overcome that. That is the part that I want to fuel. It is not to like glorify. And this is why I have a problem with the movies like Joker or something. Why I was like not really oh excited to watch. I, oh d- I haven't God. watched it yet. But I know what it, I basically I, yeah, heard I everything. I, yeah. But the problematic thing was like the glorification of the darkness. I don't want to glorify the darkness, but we have to like acknowledge it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like that's 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 where I'm at right now. I don't want to glorify or like 
say, oh, that person, they were so damaged. Like, it makes sense why they did what they did and they have all this rage. No, it's not. I don't justify that behavior. They freaking destroyed lives. They destroyed themselves. And mm-hmm. like they and I believe to the core of my being that they that somehow I wish we could have gotten them through that darkness. It's not to negate it or disqualify or minimize their darkness. But I'm like, why would you do that? Why would yeah. you have to do that? And it's hard to talk about. Like, I genuinely feel scared, like talking about this in a public format and in, in a podcast. But I feel like. How can we how can we talk about it without the glorification or I'm, without villainizing? I don't, I don't even know what the words are. Mm-hmm. I'm like honestly, this is just me being totally honest. I'm lost for words about how to talk about this, but it's got to happen. And on the on the fact that we're so normalized to like all these shootings and all this anger and all this like certainly we're 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 all kind of acknowledging that it's there. My question is why I would love to generate more conversations on what are the actual solutions policy-wise besides gun control. Mm-hmm. That is that in and of itself is a big thing for me. But also like what parenting? What parents like have there been parenting problems? like have P- I want to know I I'm not a parent so I don't know. Can someone educate me? Are there PTA movements like can we better talk about what's happening in the homes? of kids like i don't know i'm just putting i'm just like venting right now because i don't it's how why mm-hmm. <laughs> it this yeah you definitely present a loaded question because especially if we look at some of the more recent uh shootings not just especially school shootings is that it's not always the black and white scenario that their parents were abusive because right. some of the their parents were great right there, there was nothing wrong it was just there was nothing wrong with the house and yet and yet this student decided you know what i'm gonna go kill some people and so other cases, it could be that they were bullied, but then, you know, we're seeing cases, it's not so much about bullying, it's like privilege or like rage that they don't, they didn't get what they want. So like, oh, uh, who's it? Elliot Rogers. It's like because oh, yeah. he was mm-hmm. spurned by the rejection of women. And it's so, so I think right now, you know, there's, there's no simple solution to like, you know, how do we fix this? One of them definitely being like, you know, taking away to think that that will allow people to like, inflict massive amounts of casualties and harm but then if you know but then that's just like okay that's like the law thing that people can talk for decades about and it'll never get resolved but in terms of like we as individuals it's like there's there's a lot of things it's like you know it's not just one thing we have to just look at so it's like okay we look at the parenting thing we look at what's going on there we look at the environment we look at who are the people you know who are willing to talk to this person we look at like you know the person themselves, like, do they have any things they they consider to be a privilege that they think that they sh- they deserve this? Because and if the world doesn't give it to them, then they have the right to lash out. Mm-hmm. Which is why when you mentioned the Joker movie, I'm like, yes, because in a, in a sense, that's what the movie is. He didn't get what he wanted. And so he lashed out. And the only reason why people love it is because it's the Joker. It's because we're like humanizing the Joker because he is, you know, the way it was done in the past is that he was a force of violent, chaotic nature that had no backstory. But it was preferable that he had no backstory because once you give a sympathetic backstory, then we go, oh, then it's okay that we have that as opposed to like, no, that's not okay. The fact that you even decided to make a protagonist only shows that like we're 
utterly fascinated by that. And the fact that this film currently right now has made over a billion dollars worldwide uh, is the most successful rated R superhero franchise uh, like film ever shows that the world is obsessed with that. They want to, they want to feel that. And that's only uh, the sign of just like where society is in general, that we are fascinated with darkness, but we're not interested in curing the darkness. Yeah. We don't, really care about that because we're so obsessed with it and so to answer that i don't know like i don't you. i don't want to further yeah and and this this is where i'm even trying i'm doing my best because i was terrified to put my thoughts out into the world to be honest like it's at that point where you see so many people get harpooned or corrected or canceled or whatever yes. for having an opinion therefore i've always been really hesitant and terrified okay same, maybe that, like, the Asian upbringing of, like, don't speak out because if you speak out, you're going to be hammered down. And, but I also feel like not speaking, this is also why I have anger towards my culture, not speaking has so many consequences, mm-hmm. too. Not saying what you genuinely feel, going through the trenches of figuring out what platform, what medium, what audience, what words, what tone, what everything— the doing is the learning and I have to do it in order to learn, right? So yes. like I just had to deal with that and swallow it and, and say, fine, if I'm going to have these conversations, let's go there. So I, I, I hopefully will, will generate questions, more questions than definitive answers. Because that's honestly the older I get, the more questions that I have, more than definitive answers. I have opinions, but I'm also like learning a lot of opinions I've grown up with were completely wrong. <laughs> they're based on nonsense. They're based on propaganda. They're based on completely on emotion, no reason. I've learned continuously that I've been wrong about a lot of things, but over the years have honed a better sense of like thinking through things mm-hmm. and creating better judgment through combining intellect and my feelings. What does my gut and my feelings say? So my gut and my feelings say we need to talk about this. How? I don't know. And I'm so scared to say the wrong thing. I'm so scared to like do damage when it already is so sensitive and like a precarious, fragile thing that we need mm-hmm. to treat with care. But again, I come back to the same conclusion. Again, I'm not even saying anything conclusive right now. I'm literally just walking people through my thought process. It's been tough to like bring up a subject because I'm like, Oh God, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't, I don't want to further mess up somebody else's brain or maybe they're in a bad emotional place and I just tip them over the edge. So I want to be very clear. That's why I'm trying to be hyper uh, clear about my intentions. I do not glorify these actions. I do not justify these actions. There's explanations to them. And I think we're all very curious, maybe because it, it connects to something dark within all of us. And I can say first and foremost that I've been told so many times um, about how positive I can be. And I am. I'm an optimist, and I believe and I see the best in people. Does not mean that I am exempt from having very dark, angry thoughts. And I would say that when I was younger, there was a part of me that glorified it, that, like, kind of got drunk on it. Mm -hmm. And I have toyed with some very, very dangerous things within myself. And I've stared it in the face. And honestly, even recently, like, there's times where it's gotten really, really bad. Um, and I don't know what the best medium for, for that is. That's why I started, you know, I approached therapy. I paid mm-hmm. for a therapist. Um, I decided to, for, for my own, like, kind of, like, self-protection, to start meditating. Like, stop talking all, all these things, just talking. Walk the damn walk. Like, you're going to do this? Put in five minutes a day and calm down your mind so you don't lash out at people who don't deserve it. And I have, you know? So 
Yeah, neither of us have the answers. I'm really, really grateful, Eddie, that you would be that open. And, like, I, I appreciate that we can be that clear about what we've been through. And I'm just putting it out there again. I do not... I, I understand where artists come into... That's why I'm like, it's such a dangerous time. Like, artists really need to be mindful of, like, what we put out in the world. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that? Yes. Um, like, especially what I was explaining while I was going through this, it's like, you know, back in 2007, we, you know, we didn't have any of this social media. We didn't have any of this thing. So it's like, you know, but now, you know, we, you know, the one thing we do have to add is to be more aware of, like, what we're doing. It doesn't mean to censor yourself to like completely blot it out entirely. But then it's just kind of like to be mindful of like, you know, what are we trying to do exactly? What is the story we're trying to tell? Like if it's something that's purely subjective, it's like, this is experience I went through. It's a, it's like a, whether it's like a poem or is this, it's like, you know, no matter how angry it is, it's like, I do think that there's always a space for that. And if people, you know, want to disagree or be like, oh, you can't say that. It's like, well, this person's stating that this is how they felt. Mm-hmm. Now, this things can get tricky because, and once again, bring up Joker, you can argue that that is an artistic expression of what this is, that Todd Phillips wrote the story and directed it and being like, that's, that's what it is. And so I am not a fan of like, you know, saying that we can't make movies like The Joker or anything like that, you know, but I think that we are most certainly entitled to have the conversations about like, what's the danger of this film? And to have, you know, people like Joaquin Phoenix be open to that instead mm-hmm. of being like, oh my God, how dare you? Because that's how they reacted. They acted really poorly. They reacted, I haven't even followed up on that, did they? They did. Like, they were not happy with how people were saying like, this movie could be considered dangerous. Mm-hmm. Have you ever? And then they were just like, well, what the hell? Like, how dare you ask that question? It's art, man. It's art. And I'm like, it's art, but you're, you're definitely saying something. Yeah. And so if you, you should know that. And so that seems really that's why ridiculous. I, I thought that's, less of Joaquin and Todd Phillips. I'm like, you know what? You if guys they're are that flabbergasted. Like the, how can you be that shocked that people are going to have that person? Like that, yeah. that, that is a signal of some supreme un- like if they knew and they made it anyway that's a different thing because yeah. then they can just be like yo well this was our intention this was what we wrote and then you can like stand for them that just that blows my mind i didn't know that i had no yes. idea that was and that's reaction. why there was more negative reaction uh to them and the film it didn't matter in the end because look how well it did but it's like it's still it made me pay more attention to them and be like how fragile their white male ego was because the fact that, and that's just the thing, not just, you know, white people, just, you know, the male ego. It's like, I'm learning this constantly with my relation with my partner is just like, you know, the male ego is a very fragile thing. It's like, you can easily, you know, wounded and their pride just gets flared up. And they're like, Oh, how dare you blow like that. And so, <laughs> um, and so with this one, it's the same thing. It's like, as opposed to just like, just being like, okay, okay. I'm hearing your thoughts. I necessarily don't agree with them, but I want to hear them. And so it would have been different if they just be like, okay, I didn't, you know, maybe they generally didn't see that and be like, oh shit, we didn't know. Because art can have so many interpretations, the good and the bad. And I think the artist, you know, doesn't mean they have to listen and always do what the society wants them to do. But I think this in this generation, this time right now is to be aware of it and just don't always speak out in defense. It's like such an outrageous self-defense, but just be like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know. And just, well, just def- listen. Yeah. And I think that, that, that verb is a very, myself included, 
a much taller order than a lot of people are realizing. It's hard. Now that it's, it's really being hard. put to the test, right? Like, are you actually listening? When I was listening, when I was listening to somebody speak about the art of conversation, that you're listening to understand, not to respond or yes. react. I was like, I don't think I do that. <laughs> like, I, I don't. I don't do it nearly enough. I'm hearing them. I'm hearing them out mm-hmm. so that I can say something. Yes. And that's a very different thing than listening to try to understand what the other person is saying. And I think that we are genuinely being at a at a very specific crossroads. I don't think I'm over-dramatizing this, too. There's been enough uh, momentum in a lot of emotional, psychological, and and just, like, real-life lot with money and, po- like, politics and business. There's been enough that's kind of mounted to this point mm-hmm. that we need to listen. It is not the time to just react and that's a very big thing that I'm saying. We all need to listen. I'm going to still say it because I'm still trying to do that myself. If anything, I've having been in a relationship too, it's funny that you bring up Josephine, your partner. Like being in a relationship has taught me that in spades. Like I am recognizing how much I don't listen and how much I really value my opinion <laughs> more than anybody else's. Mm. Um and how damaging that can be when you when that's all that you want in return is to like that whole simplified thing of treat others the way that you want to be treated, right? Yes. Way bigger thing to do in practice than in theory. So I think every, we're all just being tested. So it's maybe saying the most duh statement on the face of the earth right now. But I think the listening part is is paramount. And I think, you know, just to reiterate what I was saying, I don't think that there's any one clear solution. But I personally at least in my life, what I am seeing good results in, if you will, is being intentional about things. To not be, to the opposite of being reactive is being proactive or being responsive instead of reactive, right? And I think that means I got to think a little bit before I speak. And I have to think about, do I want to exacerbate the problem or do I want to make a solution? Because the reality is I would love to have peace and harmony and just like be chill versus feeling angry all the time. Yes. The world exhausts me. And like, so I think it does, you know, whatever extent people have to go to, that's just a request, I guess, I'm putting out in the universe is people putting intention behind their actions. And Mm -hmm. even that internal action, the thing that you're doing inside your own head before you open up your mouth to like respond to a Twitter tweet or whatever there's enough reactive people i think the solution really needs to be building some momentum here which means listening which means acting upon things that may be frightening like speaking out finding the right audience for that i don't know but i i'm realizing that i've spent a lot of time fixating on the problem and now it's really like i'm really doing my best to to find a solution to focus on the solution Yeah. yeah And what does that solution look like? How do we get there? Like reverse engineer that that mofo and like yes. go there. I think it's like in our own way because it it's like there's so many like, you know, when you're younger and you see all these problems, you want to solve everything. And so, you know, with social media, you know, you just put it out there. You put all these thoughts out there. And in the end, you start to realize that none of these are really making change. They're not. You're just barking noise out into the ethos. And a lot of times your audience will go along with you and it's just a bunch of like-minded people and go like yes yes we all agree we all mob agree. mentality oh yeah and so it's like to recognize that we're in the space you're in what difference can you make and just make the effort to do it even if it's as small as like you know be like you know what 
I'll donate to ACLU. I'll I'll do that. It's a small thing, but it's like just just do it. Just do that. Or like you have time to you know you know to help out with this cause. Just just do that. It's like you know don't like pat yourself in the back and be like oh, I'm amazing now. It's just it's just little things here and there in terms of like when you're saying how do we make a difference. It's just like acknowledging kindness and all that and i think this is where like you know now that we're coming to this weekend i'm ex- obscenely excited for this movie the beautiful day in a neighborhood okay mr rogers because like you know what was so special about mr rogers was that like he really listened to everyone he really did and there was nothing wrong with this man because he was just he was that kind of guy and it's like it's interesting in this culture of like where we find the terrible things about our heroes and it can be so crushing to be like oh my god they're actually a scumbag. And so this is where it's like, it's nice that still to this point, and I still pray that nothing will, there's no demons coming, that Mr. Rogers is still one of those few human beings who is so revered, but is because of Cute. all the goodness he had. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, this movie, you know, I, uh, and I think a lot of people who are listening can attest. It's like, it's when you have movies like that, it's a reminder that, you know, it's good to have, art like that mm-hmm. because the opposite of mr rogers is a man who is broken who is angry it's the journalist who you know everything just is terrible life is darkness mm-hmm. and so i think a lot of us feel like that journalist like feel like there's no hope for this and so beautiful day in the neighborhood is a film like you know and i see in other artworks where it's just like it's you know we can we can be so focused on the darkness and the terrible things and get so swallowed up by it and yet we can make things like that film and many others through poems, through artwork, through music that shows that there is perseverance in making things better. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, and even things like we look across the world and we look at what's going on in Hong Kong. It's like the protest has been going on for six months there. And it's just like it's getting it's, bad. it's getting bad. And it's like, you know, you know understanding like you know if you were you know if you're on a side that didn't understand it or oppose what these protests were doing this is why i talk about listening it's just like why are they so angry there you have to listen to it you don't have to agree with it just listen to it mm-hmm. and i think there's a difference between like you know you know you know you have to agree with it and just listening and i think as we're going back uh the solution may just be even as as naive as it is to literally listen and don't say anything that's it true that's it yeah i agree yeah and i hope that uh i don't know i just i feel very grounded right now i don't know how else to put it (laughs) i i'm a firm believer that big big things happen from little actions and um we i don't like the word should but I, i would hope that nobody discounts the magnitude of a small action yes one of the things that I'm not patting myself on the back for, but I was actually really cringing about was I got irritated at a T-Mobile customer rep the other week because my bill <laughs> was uh, incorrectly charged and then my they, my phone stopped working and like whatever. It was a billing issue. It wasn't her fault. It was, yes. She was the person who picked up my yep. call. And I was being a total ass to her. And it was really not my brightest moment. And I felt bad, and Kenji was even like, she didn't do anything to you. And I was like, oh, geez, I'm having, I was, again, I was with a bad day, and then it got worse, and I took it out on her. One of the things I did my best to try to redeem myself, because I had already been irate at her and been mean, 
I apologized to her. I was like, hey, look, I'm really sorry. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. And that's, again, not, I'm not praising myself, but I'm sharing that as something like I, I ate crow and I had to just like deal with that moment. Mm-hmm. There are things that are that small that hopefully I pray to God that I could somewhat rectify how mean I was being to her. Again, I wasn't like cussing her out, but I was just being like, not a nice, I was like, yes, that's my name. Like, I was just, I know how nice I can be and I know how big of a dick I can be. So small things. If someone was speaking to me that way, in any sort of regular fashion, or even once, like literally, what happens on the freeway in LA when you someone cuts you off and does, or like they get in your lane, don't give oh, the wave? Come on, man! Like little things add up mm-hmm. real quick. And yes. so, um, while we're talking about very big things, I I'm a firm believer in like action, and I don't think that those actions have to be super super giant. And also the fact that we live in an interdependent interdependent society. If you're a teacher. If you're a caregiver, you give provide a service, and you have clients, like whatever, just be kind and be nice and like genuinely, not to placate people and not to like get them off your back, but like remember that we're all humans. Mm-hmm. And sometimes like the good stuff doesn't get as much attention. We are in a very like the things that get clicks and the things that get spread and retweeted and shared. It's a lot of the trolly nasty narratives. And we can all share our cute dog videos and everything that I genuinely appreciate. It makes you just remember there are good things in life. Yes. But whatever good you can bring. I mean, Eddie, I'm I'm just really glad that you you did the work internally and with others and through your teacher and, like, through the art. You get to sit here with me and that, like, you've worked through a lot of that. And, and I've worked through my stuff, too. And I know that there are others out there listening that are doing the same. So I'm just saying that there are ways to get through it. They're beacons of hope. I think, Eddie, you're honestly, you're one of them. And also, before you have to go, because I know you got to go handle more of your, your art life, um, acknowledge that you have an award named after you at your college that you just got notified about. And that's yes. a freaking huge deal. And I had no idea that, like, all this work, the stuff that you and I have talked about for years at this point, like, it began and, like, that you're getting acknowledged. That's freaking beautiful. So congrats. Thank you. Um, it is... <laughs> It is still hard to comprehend that. Um, yeah, so back, what do you mean you saying? At the College of Women Mary, uh, the Asian American Studies Department is awarding me this it's name and my name for student, uh, for activism and student leadership uh, because of the thing I mentioned before about starting the IPAX organization and also at the same time that I was the first person along with Francis, we co-created the Asian American studies major because it didn't exist. We had to make it up. And so we just culminated that. And then I became the first, I became the first. And then since I graduated in 2009, there's been others that followed suit. And so now that they're about to, they have a minor now and they got a large funding for it and they're about to have a, you know, an official department for it. You know, now they're like, Oh, we want to acknowledge you for that. And we're like, can you come to Williamsburg, Virginia next year to make a speech about it? And it just feels weird because it's just like, you know, I do understand I've done things, but it's just like, you yeah, there are people in my life who I'm like, I, you guys have done so much more. I, and I remember being in college and being so in awe of people in my, you know, in my environment who were just like, you guys are, li- you're, you know, now they're like, some of these people are lawyers for human rights organizations and all this. And, and I'm an actor in Los Angeles. And so, <laughs> so it's like, I have to acknowledge this, like, you know, 
you know, as much as wonderful as this award is, it, it's, it, it does kind of make you, you know, cause I went the opposite way of like, not like crushing myself, be like, oh, I don't deserve it, but also just be like, it, it's, it's, it's this weird floating feeling of like, there's actually a fucking name in my, uh, as an award and it's overwhelming. It's still overwhelming. And I think it will continue to increase when next May comes around. But I can only be so grateful. That's the only thing you can to just be like, no, 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 don't give it. Just be like, just be okay and just say thank you. Yeah. Just, just thank you so much. Receive and say thank you. I'm pretty sure in my speech, I'm probably going to say I'm so still confused why I'm even here. Because you cry. I'll, I'll probably, probably cry. <laughs> and then so uh, they'll be like, Let dude, do this speech. And they're like, people in the audience be like, what the hell? Like, why is he crying? And so, Well, I also think you're getting it. And this is... Uh, well, I'll say about people I have admired greatly. People didn't do it for awards. They don't do things. They do them because they have purpose, and they do it because they're, they they want to do it because they want to make the movie because they want to make the program. They want it like teachers that I admire. They did it because they cared about the students, not because they deserved. They wanted the recognition. The recognition can be the byproduct. I think it's really wonderful. I also know that there's a lot of things that happen out in this universe that never gets proper acknowledgement. I, I hope that that doesn't stop anybody from doing it. Mm-hmm. They do it because it's the right thing to do. Yes. or They believe it's a good thing to do with integrity. Um, but And maybe that in and of itself is the reward enough. But the fact that you're getting rewarded for this, I think it, it's, it's a testament to you made a really big impact. And that's something to celebrate. So, Eddie, I know you're super uncomfortable when people like compliment you. So I had to do it on the record. So I have it for all eternity. Um, thank you so much for coming and talking with me about this. Thank you for having me. Yeah. This, where, where can yeah. people follow your journey? If, oh, well, do you want to do any plugging? Oh, sure. My social media. Oh, follow me. Um, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, I go by Cinnabon Monster. Uh, that's just one word. That's a that's a whole other. That's story. a whole story. Basically, yeah. I love that fatty pastry product a lot. Um, you can follow me on through that social media channel. All right. Well, keep an eye on Eddie. I I'm really excited for all that's to come for you. All the projects you'll do. We could work on something together down the line. We got a long road ahead of us. Of we course. Got stories to tell. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of First of All. And if you enjoy this, um, if it spoke to you, please share it with a friend and please leave a five star review and subscribe. It'd be great to keep the conversation going with my listeners i appreciate and adore all of you thank you to everyone's been messaging me it's been really great to hear how these stories and journeys of all these friends of mine and amazing people that i know are impacting lives eddie i'm very sure that you're going to be touching a lot of hearts um hopefully we'll make a good difference together so a uh, real quick shout out and thank you to marv Newey, my audio engineer and producer thank you to aquafina and uzahan for their use of their music for the intros and outros and you can find first of all on itunes google play stitcher radio public spotify and everywhere else you find podcasts and you have an amazing week take care of yourself uh, meditate, sleep, drink water, get that vitamin D. A? D. I don't get some sunlight. Uh, it's, you know, days are shorter. Have an amazing Thanksgiving. It's getting into the holidays. This is an important time. Love on everyone. Be grateful. Show that gratitude. And I'll talk to y'all later. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Came in 88. 
with a dream oh so bright eyed they knew right away sink or swim there's no lifelines cutting the teeth on the move nobody's filling these shoes balling on a budget at the golden arch super size number two cash way that the world ain't budging gotta make a power move deep in the darkest dungeons I'm digging up my own rule hands on the plow keep my head down sweat on my brow don't make a sound pay my dues now Hi, I'm Marvin. And I'm Rira. We're the host of Books and Boba, a book club and podcast dedicated to books by Asian and Asian American authors. Every month we pick a book by an Asian author to read and discuss on the show. We read a wide variety of genres from contemporary to historical fiction, fantasy to memoirs, and crime thrillers to romance. Some of our past book club picks are Pachinko by Minjin Lee, Sorcerer to the Crown by Zen Cho, and Devotion of Suspect X by Keigo Higashino. We also go over what's new in the Asian American literary world and chat with some talented Asian authors about their work. So whether you want to start reading for fun again or diversify your TBR list, we got your Asian literature cravings covered. For more info, check out our website at booksandboba.com. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.